Hello, and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heap, speaking to you from sunny Austin, Texas. I'm here today with Ryan Hemmer. Hey, Ryan. Hey, John. It's sunny in Minneapolis, too, but it is negative three degrees. That is not very many of the degrees. And Robin Beret. Hi, Robin. Oh, hey. It's not sunny because it's Toronto, um, and they don't know what sunshine is. Never heard and of it's it. Like, it's like negative 16 degrees, but in the real scale, not the Fahrenheit one. So The scale with the really big and therefore imprecise degrees? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're the one that a- has like some <laughs> basis in reality. We're going to have a, a dance off. Water doesn't freeze at 32 degrees. Um, that is that is inelegant. It's true. I yeah, can, and it's totally hit. unrelated to the Kelvin scale. <laughs> no, it's just I Boy. can't off the top of my head think of what minus 16 is. Literal temperature takes this five, morning. It's like five degrees. Five degrees, something like that. I'm not going to ask These are low temp takes. These are low temp takes. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is our second episode of the sort of new spring season of Systematically. Um, we're doing a thing for the moment while we get all our logistical ducks in a row for having guests. I actually just lined a, uh, a good one up for April, um, where we're looking at some essays by Lonergan. Uh, so rather than talking about insight or method of theology, which people may or may not have uh, had some encounter with, we're going through, um, last week we did the Dialectic of Authority from a third collection. And today we're going to talk about an essay, uh, a pretty well-known essay called Dimensions of Meaning from Collection. Um, But before we jump into that, we'll have a little frivolity. Uh, I also want to mention this is uh, our our second episode where we can talk about our Patreon uh, program or whatever it's called. I'm not really sure. but Patreon is a thing where you can go in and you can make small monthly donations to artists and content creators of various kinds. Um, and we've created uh, a Patreon account. And y'all, as of recording this, you haven't even heard our first episode. And, but I put it up on Twitter and we've already got three patrons. Because I'm a huge nerd, I called our patrons systematicians. <laughs> Which is so stupid. But anyway, here we are. Uh, we got three people who are helping make the show sustainable to pay for, um, you know, all kinds of things like our fancy video conferencing software and uh, our uh, audio hosting fees and all that kind of stuff. So um, thank you to them. They know who they are. Uh, and thank you to you in advance if you uh, become a supporter of the show. We would really appreciate that. It helps make the show sustainable for us, um, helps us. Uh, keep doing it with um, minimal friction. So if you want to, if you want to go check that out, um, it's uh, Patreon.com/slash/systematically. Um, Patreon.com. If you do support us, I promise that I won't let John call you systematician. <laughs> She'll go in and edit it. I promise. Systemaniacs. Yeah. Systemaniacs. <laughs> That's even weirder. Um, <clears throat> also, a thing I've mentioned on the last episode, and that uh, I've talked about on Twitter a little bit is uh, we've decided to take the segment Treasures Old and New and open it up to you, our dear listeners. So if you have two books, an old book and a new book, that you think people should read, send us an email to systematicallypodcast at gmail.com or drop it uh, in our DMs on Twitter. Send us the two books you think people should read, an old book and a new book, and like a, a little paragraph about each, saying something about it or why you think it's important. And we might just read it on the show. Um, it may come to be at some point where if people are doing this regularly enough, uh, I might bump it over to being a, a special prerogative of the Patreon supporters. But for now, get in while it's open to everybody. Question, what's a DM on Twitter? Direct message. You can direct message through Twitter? You sure can. What? Uh, well, <laughs> everybody meet no Twitter Robin. No, but I mean, isn't the whole point of Twitter that it's public? Um, you can direct message and there's a new like bookmarks function or something that you can use. I have not yet tinkered with it. You can also set your account to private where it is the opposite of public. And that's also true. I mean, my mind is blown guys. <laughs> <laughs> then we're doing our job. Um, all right. I think that's all my logistical 
announcement type things. I'll give you a, um, a re-up on the Patreon website and on the Gmail account and stuff at the end as per usual. But between here and there, hey, Robin, you have some mystery frivolity, which fills me with anxiety. I know, right? Um, I mean, now you're kind of like we're piercing the veil here because now people are going to know we actually like usually plan frivolity ahead of time. Well, yeah. Which, I don't know. I mean, I just think that takes a little of the element of surprise out of it. But there you go. Um, well, I was thinking this week, for a variety of reasons, I was thinking about animals. Because first, like, Baby Shark is now a thing again. Which, like, it's a camp song I learned as a child. I know quite well. And it's now a it's cultural like cultural phenomena. And now it's like all of a sudden the thing, although in, the, in this new version, like, do you still lose your arm and your leg? Like, is there still a shark attack? No, it's um, so so the the deal with Baby Shark is uh, you'll find out about this because you're you're procreating um, is children are just a lot of work. But the good news is, uh, is that videos with a lot of colors and high contrast uh, and very simple songs. In fact, there's a, a whole YouTube thing of uh, a whole channel called Very Simple Songs uh, mesmerized just uh catatonic, totally narcotized by these, um, which is useful for stretches at a time. And so parents install their children in front of YouTube uh, channels of these colorful animated things with simple songs. And Baby Shark turned out to be one of these songs that everybody uses. It's in the public domain or what have you. And, uh, and I, I think that's the avenue through which like, parents were getting it stuck in their head and then talking about it on the interwebs, and it has thus become a, a cultural thing. phenomenon yes. again. Which yeah. I discovered because um, I found someone who's written the definitive Latin translation of Baby Shark, <laughs> uh, which is quite excellent. But Everybody was, needs to stop. Just stop it, Latin. But anyways, I was reading that, and I was like, where's the part where you lose your leg? Because when I learned Baby Shark as a child, you know, it was like Baby Shark, then Mama Shark, then Papa uh-huh. Shark. But then you go swimming and then there's a shark attack and then you swim away and then they eat your arm and then they eat your leg and then they eat your head and then you're dead. Oh, yeah. So like the last line is like, now I'm dead. Do, 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 do. Anyway. <laughs> so, which I think is infinitely superior. But long story short, baby shark is now a thing do. again, but with less dismemberment and death, which is sad. And also Neil's off at work in like, you know, the, the winter wonderland of his like, giant three-quarter ton truck with super swamper tires and he keeps sending me pictures of all these really furry coyotes that hang around mm. site, and they just like it's like not light. ominous at all i mean furry or mangy yeah right no no like, like i've seen healthy. the gray i know how this goes <laughs> those are wolves and you get is... eaten you get eaten by you get eaten by wild canines and uh you realize god cares about none of us uh, and the right. universe is indifferent. Yeah. I mean, all of that. But they're actually, like, not mangy. They're, like, super, like, cute. And, like, they've got their big winter oh, coats on. Yeah. So they're all, like, fluffy. And anyway, it's really pretty. And they, anyways, they just kind of, like, hang around. And I was thinking about how, like, you know, it'd be kind of fun to have a little animal sidekick. <laughs> and a, so, a wild animal sidekick, to be clear? I mean, it's up to you. So I'm oh. just like, I, wa- I would like to know if you could have an animal sidekick. Um, and like, we're going to assume in this scenario, I think that like your animal sidekick is kind of, you know, much like in the fantasy stories or like on like, you know, uh, Lotro or whatever type, you know, games. This, this animal sidekick is like not going to eat you. You know, he's right. at, at some, to some extent, like, on the same team as you. Anyways, so I just want to know. Like, like, uh, like semi-anthropomorphic? Is it, does it have the, the power of speech? I, mean, like, I guess that's kind of up to you. Okay, I was thinking right. not. I was if thinking it doesn't, not. it's just a pet, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I already have one of those. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you want your animal sidekick to just be your dog, then, I mean, go for it. But I'm just saying, like, if you had to go through life with an animal sidekick, um, what would it be? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind uh is uh i would like to have an emperor penguin as a valet 
just like what uh, trundling into rooms holding silver trays with a sazerac on it or whatever um so like you the know, scene, my suit jacket draped over its flipper uh wing should they uh, also sing like that scene in mary poppins <laughs> uh no i don't think so i think uh you know fundamentally cares about me and my family uh but uh stiff upper lip kind of english accent kind of thing um but no no show tunes uh, okay just responsible you know somewhere somewhere between alfred from batman uh and woodhouse from archer somewhere in that neighborhood yeah Excellent. This this probably discloses too much about my feelings toward pets, but I'm thinking, uh, which sidekick would in, would involve me taking on the fewest amount of personal responsibilities? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something that doesn't crap very much. Yeah, or eat very much, or you know, whatever. <laughs> so, I mean, really, what it boils down to is, I need a fish sidekick. <laughs> so, uh, so, walk me through this. How how. How does the side kickery uh, kick in? Yeah, like, so do you do you do you have like a little necklace with a fishbowl on it, and this like funny? Fish you should mention that. You? Uh, you know, not to talk out of school, but I, uh, I, my my cousin growing up, who was was also probably my best friend, um, was a weirdo, and so would keep a peanut a peanut butter jar, like a Skippy jar, that had been all cleaned out. And would keep a goldfish in it and put it on a necklace and like wear it around as a conversation piece. And believe me, it always started conversations. Uh, no doubt. I think fish's uh, name, Jonathan. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, um, Is your cousin I, I, David by any chance? No. Oh, sad. I, I, I think of, of Disco Stew with his platform shoes with the goldfish in them uh your goldfish are dead yeah you can't get them out of there <laughs> but you know the most of the responsibility is self-contained at that point with a fish literally yeah yeah the defecation all happens in an enclosed space. literally in a container yeah you just need you just need some fish flakes to throw in there with yeah. some regularity which has a nice sort of mr rogers water. that's kind of a nice yeah. mr rogers yeah, yeah exactly Put on your house sweater and, and feed your sidekick. Mm-hmm. Although the Daniel Tiger episode in which Bluefish dies has now become the... Uh, uh, spoiler alert, sorry. If you, don't want, if you didn't want to hear that, uh, apologies. Yeah, if, yeah, no. If you're not up to season 10 of Daniel Tiger yet or whatever. What's wrong with you? Uh, right. No, it's, it's become like the number one in the rotation uh, yeah. where my daughter will just say, I want to watch Bluefish. Uh, D- death has become a category in our house in, in no small part thanks to that that episode yeah, yeah. did oscar asking, which is did they excellent die? yeah no yeah. it's good it's super good uh there's a uh uh like i don't know if it's danish or swedish but there's a, a children's book from scandinavia naturally uh called flat rabbit in which a number of other animals come across uh, uh rabbits killed on the road and it's the whole premise of the book is like these animals coming to terms with the fact that their that their friend rabbit has died and, and become flat rabbit. Uh, mm-hmm. And I keep meaning to pick it up because I think that's a, that's a thing we should talk about. All right, Robin, what's your animal sidekick? Well, before we get to that, actually, the Scandinavians are kind of like at the forefront of like research on like children and dying and like how do you talk to children and die, all that sort of stuff. Like they're, you know, they seem to be into it where the rest of the world's like, oh, hell no. Um. Well, uh, yeah, unless you're, Belgian and you're more into a kind of practicum kind of thing about children dying. Yeah, but you still don't talk about it. Mm, um, that's a fair point. And uh, anyways, my animal sidekick, absolutely a mink. A like, mink. Okay, go on. I mean, I just love like the Mustilidae family in general because they're all like... I'm sorry, hold on, back it up. <laughs> I'm sorry, the what family? The Mustilidae. You know, weasels, uh, wolverines, minks, pine Ferrets? martins. Ooh. Nice marmot. Is a ferret a mustelidae? No, not a. Um, yes, it is. Yeah, all of the like, all of the animals that are the R- bad rodents guys that can Red like Bull. turn themselves in into liquid and fit inside of teacups. Yeah. <laughs> the, how exactly. big? I wish this was a video podcast for this moment where Robin's eyes got so big with excitement. Exactly. They're just like, they're so sneaky. And like, yeah, <laughs> we, we saw a mink when we were on a hiking trip on, on Vancouver Island. And like, it's just like, 
it's like water. It's like ink. You know, when you put like black ink to, into water, like that's exactly how they move. It's like they have no bones. Then they have these like crazy teeth and they could just like, I mean, a wolverine can like fight a bear. Your life. <laughs> so what kind of hijinks do you picture getting into with your sidekick? I mean, a lot of like just fitting into teacups, of course. <laughs> um, but like, I just think it'd be really handy to have a sneaky sidekick, right? So it's that like, right. You know, like everyone's kind of focused on you, whatever. And then you have a sidekick who can just like, you know, murder a cat or uh, <laughs> whoa, whoa. whoa. <laughs> fit under, fit That's under the a... first example you thought of. <laughs> I thought of teacups first. Well, do do they all have the the like um, migration speed that wolverines are famous for of like traversing two hundred miles a day and and whatnot? Uh, I mean, wolverines are big. But yeah, yeah, and they move so like they move so awkwardly, like yeah, but so fast, but very fast. Yeah, I saw one in real life once. Me too. Um, and yeah, that, that was the great greatest story I've ever heard. You guys, <laughs> can you tell it again? Story, uh, stories from the northern outposts of systematically. Yeah, exactly. I guess so. <laughs> we saw our like we were good like five hundred feet away, and I was really happy about that because i mean yeah they'll mess you up anyways but a mink is like the smaller kind of like you know more portable quite little less murdery version um and they're so but they're so beautiful and like sneaky and i just i love sneakiness now twice as portable with half as much murder exactly um and it's like you know you can just get like they're liquids like get under door cracks and like break it I, i think like if i ever became a thief you know having a mink would just be perfect and then when the mink dies like later in life i can turn it into a stole <laughs> I, I thought uh, i was thinking about making of- a tasteless joke about a mink for a coat but then robin just went and yeah wow it's a uh, kind of like a, a i picture like kind of a, a deep a, a, a dc universe deep cut where selena kyle has a mink sidekick a sidekick called the mink uh feel like that's an un- okay. underexplored um, it's I, I just think i mean like marvel has wolverine which i really appreciate but i think in general like the weasel family is just underappreciated and like when you have kind of people becoming like shape-shifting into animals when you have like there's all sorts of like fantastical worlds involving animals people becoming animals having animal traits all this sort of stuff but like, the weasel family is really under underappreciated and uh Drop it on me one more time. The name of the family. Day. Day. Well, that's mm-hmm. terrific. Well, thank you for that frivolity. My anxiety was totally unfounded. Um, this time. <laughs> yeah, this time. Uh, all right. So uh, we wanted to talk about dimensions of meaning. Um, and Ryan has taught this text before and so sent us a, a, a really lovely PowerPoint. I don't, I don't make PowerPoints because uh, I kind of hate it, but, but Ryan did a good job. Um, so Ryan's going to talk us through kind of the the like general outline of the text, and we'll focus on a couple of main points. And we may stop and discuss them along the way. And then I've I've got a couple of passages I want to I want to zoom in on. So take it away, Ryan. So this this essay is uh, quite literally titled. Um, it is an essay about dimensions of meaning, but. Uh, but Lonergan, of course, means something by meaning and many things by meaning um, that are not immediately obvious within a common sense just usage of the word. And so, uh, you know, he would get he would often get asked to talk about meaning. And then I, I, I think the people who asked him to do it would often go, huh, what? What does that mean? Um, but yeah, so this text works through. Uh, meaning in a in a kind of uh, linear fashion talking about its uh, different stages in terms of um, personal development uh, one's own growth uh, from being an infant to becoming an adult and the difference that meaning makes uh, and the different kinds of meaning one means when you're talking about the transition from uh, the, the the sort of world in which babies especially very very young infants inhabit to for the you know 
those of us who've been around toddlers and stuff, there's a marked difference. They live in a different world and it's not just because they're bigger, um, but the world means something to them in a way that it didn't just a few months prior. And so their whole way of being in the world um, adapts and changes as a result. And so, you know, Lonergan in this essay gives a kind of um, sort of Piagetian analysis of that transition from what he calls the world of immediacy to the world mediated by meaning. And the mediation of meaning is a, you know, one of the leitmotifs of, of really of Lonergan's entire career. Um, where, where what, he's, what he's trying to understand in his philosophy and his theology is the interaction between meaning, the meant, and uh, meaning-making. And so this, this essay sort of, in a, in a very brief form, at kind of the midpoint of his career, gives us a very nice window into all of these different elements um, that are somewhat diffuse in his earlier work. Uh, and brings them all together uh, in one neat package. And, you know, so he'll talk about, again, the world of immediacy, the world mediated by meaning, the world constituted by meaning. Um, and that, that issue of, of world-making or world-constitution brings him finally toward the end of the essay to contrast two structures of control for meaning where he'll talk about the classical control of meaning, by which he means things, especially like um, syllogistic logic, uh, to a modern control of meaning. Um, and so I, th I think what we'll probably do is um, kind of dig down deep into the elements of uh, those big headings that uh, seem especially interesting to us this morning. Because uh, to be quite honest, I mean, uh, much of Lonergan's philosophy is is here, and we could talk about it and expand upon it for hours. So, um, I, I would be interested to know from you guys. You know, I have my own kind of takes here. Um, what what are the what are the kind of pressure points in this essay for you that that really um, you know warrant talking about? Well, for one, it, one is the 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 exigence. That, that nudges um, communities and cultures towards uh, techniques for the control of meaning. Um, and, and ultimately for Lonergan, what those techniques consist in are techniques of inquiry. Um, but he, he has a, a passage that, you know, anymore we might... Um, <clears throat> we might want to put some asterisks on at least as to the the, the categories and, and the history given but but where he talks about um what he calls primitive human communities but also then sort of quote unquote more developed civilizations and you know there's all kinds of good good critiques of that kind of thing um but uh but the point i think is fair enough which is uh that that the mediation of meaning allows for the kinds of technological developments that let human beings transform their environment. Um, and so you can get, uh, you know, very sophisticated calendars, you can get very sophisticated irrigation and agricultural systems, you can get big, big cities with, um, you know, uh, networks, uh, big economic networks and such, so on and so forth. Um, but mixed in with uh, those, the, the sophisticated network of meanings that makes all that possible, you also have, um, to use Wittgenstein's line, you also have language gone on holiday. Um, you also have meanings that don't have any connection to um, what is in fact the case. Uh, Lonergan characterizes these, and again, we would, he acknowledged later that he might put some asterisks on the use of these particular terms, but what he calls myth and magic. And, and what he, but really at bottom, what he means about by myth and magic is he means he means meanings in the case of myth that make declarations about reality that don't have foundation in what is the case, uh, and by magic he means um, sort of uh, techniques for using meaning towards practical ends that don't actually produce any effect, um, and these 
even you know even in uh, Babylon and Rome and the Mayan and Aztec and Inca empires, right? Even in, in civilizations that develop highly sophisticated technological structures, um, where meaning is functioning really well in terms of the kind of social practicality, um, you also at the same time have robust fields of myth and magic. Um, <clears throat> and so they're, they're, uh, you know, he takes, he here uh, sort of gestures at um, a kind of axial age theory where, where more or less around the same time, at least in the big picture, a number of these, these civilizations that have uh, made big advances in terms of the technological transformation of their environment also begin to develop techniques for the control of meaning um, that become critical of myth and of magic. He doesn't see myth itself as a control of meaning. Uh, it's a control of meaning for common sense, right? Because this is this is the 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 efficacy that myth and magic have in an undifferentiated context is to maintain the kind of narrative unity of that culture, or that civilization. So, like John was saying, you know, you can have these incredibly technologically and politically and economically advanced empires that maintain this like really robust system of myth and magic. And the real function of them is not like to secure like some practical effect necessarily, but to maintain the kind of unitary order of the universe in which all of the hierarchies of that civilization sort of have their place and are put into it. Though that being said, like, Kings are still making uh, kings and generals are still making wartime decisions based on extapacy, right? Oh d- no, definitely, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. But in ter- well, but in terms of like the 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 bigger arc of the f- of the function within the civilization as a whole, they d- it still serves a a a purpose. Then that's why it has durability. Yeah, and quite so. The purpose is like the the maintenance of the of the whole cosmic order uh, within which that civilization is a part. Right, and and oftentimes the 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 sort of critical function of the control of meaning vis-a-vis myth and magic um isn't this kind of what we might think of as a kind of modernist um demythologizing but it's usually it usually is qualifying the myths right so for example you get you get sort of plato's ambivalent attitude towards um the the accounts of the gods in the in the poets um or, or, or maybe the better example is the, uh, the sort of the attitude that um, the Stoa take towards the, the, the pantheon of gods, um, where, yeah, you know, these, these serve a kind of purpose and they can be understood in a certain kind of way, um, but we're going to put these, these asterisks on it vis-a-vis our sort of philosophical understanding. Um, but anyway, I, but so that's, anyway, th- that's interesting to me that, that there becomes this exigence for um, that we see that, that Lonergan points to as being evident in the writings of Plato and in the life of Socrates of um, new techniques in meaning, right? Omni et soli definition. And um, the demand for those kinds of definitions, though it reveals the inability of the, the person of common sense to produce them when asked, that inability to produce definitions when asked doesn't impinge on the sort of social efficacy of ideals of courage and virtue and all that kind of thing. Um, but it's a, it's an enrichment. It's an enlargement of the horizon of the community. Um, and this is sort of the, this to me is one of the interesting things about what Lonergan is doing where um, he thinks of these things, not in terms of uh, dichotomies or, or in terms of sort of opposed categories, um, but as enlargements and enrichments of a horizon so that one doesn't one doesn't sort of abandon all myth abandon all magic abandon all um <clears throat> uh, uh, all sort of common sense uh imagery and fellow feeling and all those kinds of things just because one has become an, uh, an ac- academician uh but rather one finds that that the world uh, that's mediated by meaning admits of uh yet yet more meanings and meanings that have a, a sort of different valence in their relationship to reality and to practicality. Um, 
So that that part's interesting to me. And maybe as we talk about the transition from that ancient classical ideal uh, and control of meaning to the modern one, we can talk about what the exigence is between those two as well. But but maybe I'll stop there. What about you, Robin? Oh, like in terms of things, I mean, I think yeah, like what what's the, what's the kind of like highlight for you? I think the highlight for me in this is the whole issue of the world constituted by meaning. It's like the world of immediacy, I mean, makes a lot of sense. Even the world mediated by meaning, I think, is something that gets a lot of, maybe not like direct, like people are going around being like, this world is mediated by meaning. But I think the ideas that he was presenting there in terms of like the world mediated by meaning are fairly self-evident that, okay, like, um, you know, we experience the world and mean is mediated, but not only through our experience, but also, you know, um, the material of others, right? So we receive texts and whatever, but it, the world constituted by meaning is for me, like the thing I'd like to talk about a little bit more, um, in terms of what Lonergan means by that, because I think it's, um, I think Lonergan provides a way here to talk about, like when we think of world constituted by meaning, um, then you usually think of meaning as having some sort of abstract existence, right? Um, but that's not what he... Or, or if it's constructed, it's thereby not real. Exactly, exactly. Whereas what he's doing here is neither, right? He's not saying it's not real because it's constructed. And he's also not saying there's like meaning out there somewhere that's like, like abstract building blocks and you just put them together and build edifices, you know? Um, so for me, that's the part that's the most interesting, like about, um, or that I'd like to discuss a little bit more. Yeah. Well, maybe on the way to talking toward that, um, it would be helpful to put down some more determinations about immediacy and mediation. Um, I, I always found in teaching this text that, in part, this just may have been a function of like the students I had, but uh, most of whom were in the natural sciences. But even with mediation, it's it's easy to think of it sort of only in like kind of hermeneutical categories and and thinking of the phenomena that admit of the mediation of meaning as as being sort of literary or textual text based. But mm-hmm. you know, natural science is also uh, uh, an inquiry into the world mediated by meaning. Um, the only kind of, the only immediacy you have is the immediacy of sensation, right? So this is why the, the very, very young infant lives solely in the world of immediacy because there's, there's not yet emerged, um, a pattern of operation to do anything with sensation. And so you just cry all the time, uh, as the, as the kind of soul spontaneous response to, to, uh, extremes and sensation. And as a parent, all you just, all you're trying to do is like lower the frequency of those extremes so you can get some sleep. (laughs) Um, but, but like really quickly, in fact, like you, you can sort of see long before language arises in your children that inquiry has begun and, um, something is happening beyond just the raw immediacy of sensation but there's a there's an effort to try to do something like understand what the heck is going on in the sensation and to organize um one's responses to a world beyond just the kind of spontaneity of uh it feels therefore i cry um and like like i a couple of months, it's, it's, you already sort of see the, the beginnings of this coming online. But in the fully human world, right, the, the world fully mediated by meaning, um, the immediacy of sensation doesn't go away. Um, and in, the na- in natural science especially, like, the immediacy of sensation is really important. That's where most of the data come from. Um, but the meaning of the data is not given in the sensation. Otherwise, you wouldn't like need to do any investigation. You wouldn't need a scientific method. You wouldn't need um, any of the instruments that that uh, scientists use to conduct research, because whatever meaning was there to be known would be given just through the immediacy of sensation. And so, all you would be trying to do as a scientist was sort of maximize the acuity of of sensation. 
an amplifier. You wouldn't, you, wouldn't need a, you wouldn't need a distinction between temperature and hot and cold. Exactly. Right. Yep. You also wouldn't know that like what you saw on your hike was a wolverine unless, you know. That's right. You had like learned about it. Or a mink. And, so, and so, you might try to fight that wolverine for like its dinner. <laughs> that would be the end of your sensation. So if you're asking questions about the sensation, right, if you reach that moment in life, either as a very young kid who uh, first formulates an inquiry about, you know, why that why the water is hot or cold right or if you're a, a scientist forming an inquiry about the sort of uh data you see under the under a microscope when you're looking at a slide you know because you're doing inquiry what you're looking for is something not less than the sensation but beyond the sensation so you're looking for something that is mediated by meaning because you're looking for an answer to your question that you can express in some way. So um, when we're talking about mediation, we're not talking about only about philosophy or only about um, literature. We're talking about any kind of meaning that requires inquiry in order to grasp uh, from the most mundane to the most theoretical. Uh, so the world of immediacy is this extremely small world that you never leave behind, but the, media, the world mediated by meaning is the enlargement of that world whereby you can make inquiry into sensation, inquiry into the, the immediacy of, of empirical data, and understand something about them. And different kinds of questions that you ask of them are going to yield different kinds of understanding. So you can ask of them questions of common sense. But as John was talking about earlier, you can have a further enlargement in which you begin asking questions like uh, Socrates' questions about justice, right? Not just, is this set of circumstances just, but what is justice? Where the answer you're seeking is not just, um, not just going to apply to this set of circumstances, but solely at omnia, right? All circumstances in which in which are just, and a definition that only applies to justice and nothing else. Um, and so that's a kind of theoretical mediation of meaning um, that is a, that's a still further enrichment of the mediation of common sense. So, so these the the sort of structure of this is like John was saying is one of enlargement. But when we shift to, to your point about constitution, now I have to add some kind of new element into this that's going to be kind of peculiar to the world, not just that humans understand, but the world that humans make. Uh, and that, so that's going to be the kind of transition that we're making when we start talking about the constitutive function of meaning. And I find, you know, I find the discussion actually an insight pretty helpful here um, because one of the big differences is that the reason that the the meaning can play a, a mediating function <clears throat> when you engage with the various objects of the world mediated by meaning is that they are matters of fact that they they that they that they are right and what you want the what you want um meaning to do is mediate the real to you um and there's a kind of internal exigence to the processes of inquiry uh, and then one that can be made um, thematic in the articulation of methods, which are, are just objectifications of successful processes of inquiry. Um, but when we start talking about making decisions and following out courses of action, we're talking about things which are not yet matters of fact, things which are not yet accomplished. And so then, um, and actually, Thomas seems to have already. Uh, Got, uh, understood this. Um, if, you, if you look in the Verbum articles in the third chapter, it's, uh, check out footnote 20, where Thomas, Lonergan has compiled all these passages where Thomas says that uh, willing follows from a word. Um, that, that both the, the intention that organizes deliberation and action and also the decision that I'm going to do this they both follow from some 
meaning from from the the construction of an intention uh and they and they have and they have to because what you want to realize in your action is something which is not yet um and if it already was you wouldn't need to do anything um and so in that way meaning is not just meaning is not serving a mediating function of of giving you access to what is the case but meaning is serving as a, a, constitu- a constitutive function it's making your actions into what they are and giving um formal determination to the products of your action and the thing about the products of our action is that they accumulate um and they get set into schemes which can then themselves be the the sort of object of further action um and in so doing right you get um economies and polities and family structures and you know uh, projects and schemes and podcasts and dissertations and so on um and so the 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 world of um human both praxis and poesis is a world not just mediated by meaning but but really formally constituted by meaning um it's a it's a world that is um that has its sort of ontological identity grounded in the meanings of um of human of human persons which is you know uh like you know paul paul recur was was onto this too around the same time um, which is a part of the reason i think lonergan really liked recur yeah i think i mean um it's helpful to to maybe look at the difference between the this idea of the constituted that arises in the subject which i mean thomas doesn't really talk about right but but Lonergan does a lot, as opposed to conceptualism. So, I mean, Ryan, you probably have, you can clarify this much better, I think, than I can. Um, I mean, I, I think, especially for this essay, the, the way to talk about that is, is to, um, to ask the question, okay, if the world is mediated and constituted by meaning, and those meanings are expressed in ideas or concepts, how do those ideas or concepts change? Right? How do they have a history? Um, how, how do they um, make, make progress or, or fall into, into decline? And um, when you start kind of running down the options philosophically, you wind up having a really difficult time objectifying and explaining how in the world concepts can change. And the conceptualist problem is always going to be that the, the concepts uh, or the, the meanings are assumed to be given sort of by the real, right? They're sort of always already there and through the kind of brute encounter with them, um, those concepts are simply and in an unmediated way communicated to, to understanding. That's why you have so much fighting about um, the, the ontological status of universals. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so if the concepts are universals and the universals are given through the kind of immediacy of experience, like how would they ever change? Right, because they have an uh, existence independent from precisely, human yeah, and yet, boy, it sure seems like concepts <laughs> change <laughs> and ideas develop over time, and so this this whole notion that that meaning is just a kind of um, a kind of universal fixture of of phenomena that uh, that that we just sort of strip off from. Uh, it through intuition from uh, from our encounter with them, like really can't explain to you why you were ever able to learn something. It certainly can't explain to you why you might have ever been mistaken about something you thought you knew, but upon closer examination realized you were incorrect. Um, and so it actually like doesn't really conform or comport with our actual incarnate lived practices of inquiry into meaning. Um, 
but the other options really don't fare much better, right? Because you, I mean, you can take an idealist route, which is in some sense an improvement. Um, and then you just kind of have to say, well, the concepts kind of always already exist in the mind. They're not sort of given by the, the sort of um, brute encounter with, with the, the world out there. Um, you just sort of have a manifold of them that you apply to the data of experience and, and thereby create uh, the, the sort of phenomenal world. But you're, you're going to have the same problem from the other side, right? Uh, because the, the concepts are still prior to you. They're still prior to your understanding. And so have a kind of permanence um, that isn't going to be able to account for uh, growth and decline, truth and falsity, a, a, a hypothesis being born out and one falling into disrepute. Um, so it's only going to be if you have a view of meaning or a, vi- a view of concepts uh, and their formation where they're subsequent to some kind of act, right? Where, where inquiry yields to insight and insight is expressed in a meaning, in a word, in a concept, in a definition, uh, such that the truth or falsity of the insight is also going to be the predicate for uh, the truth or falsity of the concept. And so you can really have development, decline, learning, uh, success, error, all the things that happen when human beings ask questions through time and in history that I, I think the other sort of philosophical ways, either either conceptualist or idealist routes, just aren't really going to be able to account for that uh, in a very satisfying way. Right. But but then for Lonergan, those those concepts or those meanings or whatever are still real to some extent, right? Like it's not just they the hopelessly as, relativistic so that whatever concept right. you think so of So as matters of fact, uh concepts are expressions of 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 a hypothesis about what the real is right or which or is alternatively what it would be good to do yeah if if i could talk about judgments of value but if you're just dealing with judgments of fact right you 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 express a hypothesis or you express an understanding and an idea and a concept and a definition but anyone who's ever had the experience of being wrong about something knows that that word or that expression or that meaning uh, is in and of itself hypothetically true, right? It's coherent, right? It's, it sort of satisfies the, the determinations of the question that you've asked, right? It, it's an answer to the question. It's not nonsense. But as an answer, it still stands to be falsified or verified. And so you still have to sort of do more work as the, as the inquirer. You have to ask a different kind of question, uh, a question for judgment, in order to be able to determine whether or not the, the concept or the idea or the definition is real, is true, is the case, exists, or is uh, merely hypothetical, falsified, incorrect, uh, etc. Right. So that when you have a a concept that takes on kind of cultural agreement or whatever, it's not just that a bunch of people happen to think this. It's that a bunch of people asked all of the questions for judgment and felt that they were satisfied. Yeah. True concepts are verified concepts. Yeah, exactly. So it's not just like, you know, people happen to think this, you know, for no reasons at all. They happen to think it for good reasons, but they're not. universal or you know separate and you know have separate existence and also and also you know um historians are are endlessly revealing to us the the way in which certain ideas which have uh sort of perdured as concepts into our own age and time and lives um because of their change in context actually have a transformation of their meaning. Right. Um, and so the, in the world constituted by meaning, um, people saw fit to make some meaning a reality on the basis of um, an inquiry into what, what they ought to do, what it would be good to do. Uh, and the good is always concrete. Uh, and so it's always what, 
the, what it would be good to do here and now under our circumstances. Uh, and then those, those meanings can, can sort of hang on beyond the concrete circumstances in which uh, they were founded as good. Um, and, so can, and so in a way can become, as, as practical ideas can become uh, false because of, um, be, be, because of the change in circumstances. Uh, and, and this happens, you know, and this happens all the time. You know, the example I like always to give is, um, of vertical integration, which was a way of, um, which, which was a bad thing to do at the turn of the 20th century, uh, because it was a way of screwing over workers so that they had to like, you know, buy their food with script at the company grocery store. Uh, but at the turn of the 20th century has turned out to be a way, uh, in a, in a, within globalized supply chains and stuff for companies to exercise control over the quality of the workplaces and the pay their workers get and gender equity and so on and so forth. Right. And uh, vertical integration is just an, it's, it's an idea. It's a meaning. It's a, it's a construction. Um, but it was concretized in reality in two different circumstances. And in one circumstance it was bad. And recently it seems to have, at least, you know, in the case of uh, companies like uh, American giant or whatever um, it's, it seems to be good. Um, and so, and so when you're dealing with the meanings that are constitutive of elements of the human world, um, in a kind of like sophomore and college way, it can seem like relativism because it is relative to a concrete set of circumstances. Um, but the goodness or badness is actually is concrete and objective, even though it's relative to the concreteness of the circumstances. Um, and so you're, you're sort of put up against the problem of, of the history and transformation of, of meanings and ideas. Um, which is, um, we spent all the time talking about my point. You should, uh, no, that's fine. Um, I, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to decide if, if we want to get into these other two things. Um, yeah, let's, let's take 10 minutes and, uh, and I want to get into the way in which Lonergan identifies a, a transformation in the control of meaning because the, the sort of progression, and I don't mean progress here in a kind of naive modernist sense of like automatic progress. I mean, I lean sort of the, the literal barrel sort of, sort of subsequentness of, of the unfolding of history. Um, the transformation of meanings and ideas and their significance. There's an impediment to recognizing that as a problem that needs to be resolved. Um, and the, the impediment can be uh, if, a, if the people who are asking these questions about meaning spend their entire lives ensconced in a single culture uh, and human lives aren't that long. So the culture doesn't change that much. And so it can seem like both the common sense and the theoretical definitions that are generated through meaning to mediate the world and to constitute the world um, don't really undergo that much change. There isn't that much transition. Um, And one of the things that marks the sort of um, Socratic, uh, I mean, this is a little bit overwrought, but the sort of Socratic discovery of definition or something um, is that the, the power of, of that kind of theoretical approach can eclipse these issues of genesis, both, right, where do the definitions come from, and it can also eclipse the, the unfolding of transformation through time and history and between cultures and so forth. Um, and one of the things that Lonergan attributes to a modern control of meaning is that there's, there's a recognition that, the, in some ways, the cosmology of um, Aristotle suggested that there should be a realm of the world which is necessary and a realm of the world which is contingent, and that you could reduce the contingent to the necessary principles, and the necessary principles are settled by definition. And so you could have a basically logical or deductivist control of the meanings that mediate the world to you. Um, both in the, in the realm of practicality, though Aristotle acknowledges it's a little messier, but, you know, especially in the world of physics and of metaphysics, this works just fine. Um, and the, the, modern, uh, the modern control of meaning from which we get, you know, the approach of natural sciences, uh, where you speak not of verify, uh, uh, where you speak not of sort of necessary first principles settled by definition, but of verified possibilities and the like. Um, this is a world in which everything is contingent, um, in which the, the, the division between the necessary and the contingent 
uh, is no longer seen to be a kind of meaningful intramundane distinction grounding a method of reduction to principle. And um, this is no less true in the area of the natural sciences uh, than it is also in the world of the human sciences. Um, I'm going to read a little passage, actually, from uh, this is in two, on page 243 of the uh, Collected Works edition of Collection uh, from Dimensions of Meaning. Contrasting classical culture and modern culture. Quote, when the educated or the cultured or the gentlemanly or the saintly man was standardized by classical culture, right, according to these kinds of fixed definitions, then it was recognized that definitions were to be explained, not disputed. Today, terms are still defined, but definitions are not unique. On the, on the contrary, for each term, there is a historical sequence, this is what Ryan was talking about, of different definitions. There is a learned explanation for each change of definition. And there is no encouragement for the sanguine view that would exclude further developments in this changing series, right? So that these these definitions are going to keep changing as time goes on. What is true of definitions is also true of doctrines. They exist, but they no longer enjoy the splendid isolation that compels their acceptance. We know their histories, the moment of their births, the course of their development, their interweaving, their moments of high synthesis, their periods of stagnation, decline, dissolution. We know the kind of subject to which they appeal and the kind they repel. Tell me what you think, and I'll tell you why you think that way. But such endlessly erudite and subtle penetration generates detachment, relativism, skepticism. The spiritual atmosphere becomes too thin to support the life of human beings. Shall we turn to authority? But even authorities are historical entities. It is easy enough to repeat what they said. It is a more complex task to say what they meant. Um... And this, I think, is what's uh, powerful about this essay, uh, for my money, is you have this transformation where um, not just that you can't reduce things to necessary principles founded on definition, but that the historical sequence of the meanings generated by persons is itself an object of inquiry. Um, And the ideal is to explain not just the necessary first principles, but to explain all of the available data um, where Lonergan's really clear, right? The ideal is not to create some bank where you have all the data explained, but to have an ongoing process where you're, you're aiming at explaining all the data. It's like this huge challenge. It's this huge um, undertaking. And, and there's a way in which this essay, especially as it comes to its end, what it's really trying to say, especially to, to um, a Christian Catholic audience, is the, the ancient classical ideal of science and the culture that went with it made a really big achievement and is really important to appropriate and to, and to, um, to integrate into our, our self-understanding. But like, there's a new game in town, and it's an enlargement and an enrichment uh, of even that great classical achievement. And we've got a lot of work to do. Um, and we don't... Uh, we haven't figured out how to do it yet. So he's got this great passage on 238 that I'm going to scroll to now where he says something that when you've heard all of the, maybe maybe you have, maybe you haven't. If you're in my world, you hear sort of unending arguments about modernity like it's this accomplished project and we're inveighing on whether it's good or bad. Um, Cyril O'Regan has a great uh, essay talk that he gave that's up on Church Life Journal called The Gift of Modernity. Um, where he sort of uh, categorizes camps of people who have different conclusions to that question. Um, But Lonergan says this, what breathed life and form into the civilization of Greece and Rome, what was born again in a European Renaissance, what provided the chrysalis whence issued modern languages and literatures, modern mathematics and science, modern philosophy and history, held its own right into the 20th century. But today, nearly everywhere, it is dead and almost forgotten. Classical culture has given way to a modern culture. And I would submit the crisis of our age is in no small measure the fact that modern culture has not yet reached its maturity. The classical mediation of meaning has broken down. The breakdown has been affected by a whole array of new and more effective techniques. But their very multiplicity and complexity leaves us bewildered, disoriented, confused, preyed upon by anxiety dreading lest we fall victims to the up-to-date myth of ideology 
and the hypnotic, highly effective magic of thought control. End quote. Um, that to me is a, a still a provocative thesis. That the issue with modernity is not that it's a project that has either failed or succeeded that we either need to get on board with or 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 sort of get you know hop off the ship, um, but that the modernity is in fact such a big and significant transition transformation um, that it is it has especially so recently shaken off its own roots in classical culture. Um, that it's not that modernity is a, is a concluded project we need to invent yes or no about, um, but it's like a, it's a baby. Modernity is just getting going. Um, and it's in fact that it, that it has been going for so long and is only just getting going, meaning means it's so, it's so big um, that we, uh, like, uh, it's a tide we're carried on, um, not a project that we get to have uh, a kind of consumerist mastery over, right? It's one of the options from which we get to pick. That seems to me the great irony, right, of, of all those critiques. Sorry, Robin, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, which, which makes a lot of sense when you consider, like, how you know things, right? Because in a classical system, you only need to know one of a species to know what a species is, right? I mean, functionally, you just maybe need two to make sure that the first one wasn't, like, deficient or something. But you only need like the points of data that you need to arrive at a definition is really quite small, right? But under the modern system, to arrive at a definition involves kind of like the other, what you were quoting on, where is that, on 243, right? Mm -hmm. No. Um, Right, you know, so like definitions are not unique. There's a historical sequence of different definitions, a learned explanation for change, whatever. So the amount, like, so if you want to define, like, what is, what is a woman? What is a orange? What is a whatever? In classical culture, you only need one or two. You only really function need one to know what it is, right? But in modernity, you need that, a huge swath of data because half, a lot of how you understand the definition ends up being in all of those differences, right? So it makes sense that it's an unfinished project and it's questionably like and it kind of raises a question for me of whether it's a finishable project at all because just with the volume like once you've made the shift where you allow for all of like the historical contingency and then the differences like historical difference i don't know if it's actually something that you ever can finish does that make sense like, no and I, I think lonergan's lonergan's big insight around this time and it's probably no mistake that it's around this time that, that Lonergan makes a sort of big theoretical breakthrough about theological method, uh, which is called functional specialization. We'll probably talk about it in another episode. Um, is So if this is the kind of ongoing project and the, and the idea is never going to be to compile all of human knowledge into, a, um, you know, into one big bank, then really the, the, the work of the unification of knowledge is at the level of method. Um, by what techniques are we going to proceed in trying to stay oriented according to this larger, more uh, and, and enriched horizon of the control of meaning? Um, and, uh, and, that, and that for him then becomes a kind of organizing uh, principle for work later on, right? To, to give an account of theological method that can live up to this new ideal of history that isn't just the reduction to principles, isn't just the reduction to a single world culture. Um, and, uh, and so, the, so the, in a way, the, the, problem, the problem posed by modernity can't be answered with the techniques of classical culture. It, you can't generate a synchronic theory, right, a metaphysic that then holds things in a unity. What's going to hold things in unity is a diachronic method um, that unifies task of inquiry, that, that organizes the task of inquiry, and that can be ongoing as long as there are humans and human cultures and human lives um, and a universe to explore. We should probably Seems wrap like up as here. good a place as any to stop. Um, well, terrific. And there's, you know, lots of other things that could be said. As Ryan said at the beginning, this is sort of... Um, 
all of Lonergan's project in an essay. So maybe it was, maybe it was uh, hubris to, it, to go after it in an episode today. But um, <clears throat> in any case, thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Robin. Thanks, thanks John. And, and thanks, Robin, for a, a, a perfectly harmless bit of frivolity. Again, I was needlessly worried. All right. You can find us on Twitter at SystematicPod. You can send us an email, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. If you, again, if you, if you want to have your treasures old and new right on the air, shoot us an email or, or slide into our DMs. Uh, if you would be willing to help financially support the show to make it more sustainable for us, um, we are, with, with only three patrons so far, we are nearly halfway to our monthly operating costs. So um, if a, a handful more of you would jump on, it would, be, it would probably get us there. That's patreon.com slash systematically. Uh, thanks as always to, uh, Brian Bacek, who couldn't be with us today because a uh, winter storm was knocking out his power and, it, and his internet. So unfortunately he couldn't join us again, but hopefully he'll be back next week. Um, but he does our editing work and putting the music at the top and the bottom and all that kind of stuff and putting the show notes together. So Brian, thank you as always. Our music that goes at the top and the bottom is track 14 off of ghost two by nine inch nails. Um, thanks for listening y'all. I hope you're enjoying these, these, uh, walkthroughs and discussions of these essays and we'll have uh, we'll have a guest or two coming up pretty soon so that's it for us thanks so much and as always be intelligent